I believe that innovation in finance is finite and innovation in software is infinite, right? So if you look at a company like Stripe, they've done one thing that has been done before them, but they've built generations of IP above that idea of payments acceptance, right? So they've not created any new way to move money, but they've created experiences and software layers and data layers and fraud prevention that comes on top. And that's how we think about units. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about Fintech Leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Itai Damti, CEO and co-founder of UNIT, one of the leading banking-as-a-service and embedded finance providers in the U.S. Launched in 2019, UNIT is backed by Excel, Better Tomorrow Ventures, Insight, Flourish Ventures, and many more. Itai is also a serial entrepreneur, having previously co-founded two companies in the financial industry back in Tel Aviv and Hong Kong. We discussed learning from successes and failures of building companies around the world, embracing atomic problem solving, and why this is incredibly important in product and company management, what fintech founders should keep in mind when partnering with banks and financial institutions, fundraising lessons and why you should not ignore investor feedback and just a lot more. Itai, thank you for joining the FinTech Leaders Podcast. It's a long time coming. I've honestly have wanted to host you for a long time. And so thanks for joining us. Thanks for hosting me. How's it going today? Great. So Itai, the first thing I want to talk about is your international background because Unit is, I believe, your third company you've launched. And what's more interesting to me is not only that you are a repeat entrepreneur, but your previous companies were launched in different parts of the world. So you have a perspective of what it's like to be a founder in the U.S. versus Israel versus Hong Kong and and even other places. So let's talk specifically about that background and why become an entrepreneur. Being a founder is a grind everywhere, not just in in one place. So it's not for everyone. I can speak to maybe my background with the previous two companies, and then I can talk about the maybe the lessons I've learned about starting a company and about being a founder in different parts of the world. So. My first company was Leverate. Leverate is a company that I co-founded with three other people. One of them is my co-founder and CTO at Unit, Duron. And that company was a brokerage in a box business. We were four scrappy founders. We scaled the business organically to 160 people globally. And what we did was, if you wanted to start something like a Robinhood or interactive brokers anywhere in the world, you could come to us with a license and we would give you all the tech you need to run the business end-to-end. Liquidity, risk management, trading platforms in 25 languages, compliance tools, CRMs, 
uh, it's the end-to-end solution. And so we started four founders, scaled the business globally, and I left it after 10 years. Over the years, I was leading engineering first because that's my background. And then I started and managed the product team in Tel Aviv. And then in 2014, I moved to Hong Kong to manage the business in Asia Pacific. And I transitioned fully to the dark side of business and became the, the regional CEO. So that was the first experience. 10 years, the beginning was in Israel, but then I expanded. I, I moved to Hong Kong to help the company expand in Asia. The second company is a company that I co-founded while in Hong Kong after I left Leverate. And it was a short-lived, unsuccessful company. I folded it after one year. It was a very, very exciting company to build. It was a quant fund that traded between about 30 crypto exchanges and engaged in, in market-making activities, which is a fascinating kind of technical and intellectual domain. But it was something that we could not get off the ground as two founders and then eventually folded it. And so Unit is my third uh, base here in New York. We have my co-founder and the technical team, product team based in Tel Aviv. And that gives me that kind of global perspective and, and experience of launching multiple companies in multiple parts of the world. What's your take on the resources for entrepreneurs in the U.S.? Because I remember when I first arrived here 15, 16 years ago, and I grew up kind of all over the place, but I had never seen the level of support and the, the type of entrepreneurial communities that you have here. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I would say some things materialize at scale. I mean, I think that the act of scaling the company is a demanding act, both from a talent perspective. You need the market to have a deep talent pool and you need to be able to tap into it, which the U.S. offers. And also you need the knowledge and the the know-how from potential investors and executives and other ecosystem members. The U.S. is special in that regard. It does offer these two things. But I think the knowledge thing has actually become a lot easier for global founders. I remember reading Paul Graham's essays in 2007 or 8 while I was in the Israeli army. And I was like drinking this knowledge because it felt so fresh and so articulate for what people needed to think about when they built companies. And Paul Graham is the founder of Y Combinator, which is a big accelerator. Today, I think that the world is a lot flatter. I think this type of knowledge is available to founders at every ecosystem because there's so much written and recorded context that people can read about. There are books about how to build companies, how to find product market fit. They're all theoretical, but at least the body of knowledge that you can tap into as a founder is a lot bigger. So I think the knowledge part, I, I would say the world is pretty flat today for founders. I think that the accelerators, 500 startups, YC, the big ones are now tapping into the global pool of startups and they're just spreading the knowledge. So there's more sophistication. I would say the US is unique in two, two regards. So one, I said the talent pool and just the ecosystem support. And the second thing is, of course, the capital. I think that it's the most sophisticated and rich ecosystem in the world as far as the depth of capital. And there's funding here for many kinds of ideas, which is a blessing, also a curse, but mostly a blessing. It's I. As you well know, this is a fintech podcast, and one of the most relevant themes in fintech in the last few years, and especially recently, is bass banking as a service. And I think you're probably the person to help us understand, first of all, what is bass? Let's start right there. I'll start by saying that I don't think BATH is the right term for the next 10 years of this industry. I hope it goes away at some point and gets replaced by terms such as embedded finance that I think represent the demand side and provide a better understanding of what it actually is. 
I think we should define the term best first. And we should start by saying that the innovation in financial services has occurred in two waves. If you look at the last 15 years in the US, the first 10 years, call it 2008 to 2018, were all about what we call FinTech 1.0. was companies like Venmo and Chime and Lending Club and Betterment and Robinhood that took one financial product and tried to innovate on that financial product and gain the distribution before the big banks and the big players get the innovation, right? So that was a big wave that was very celebrated and took a long time to emerge. Some of these companies have succeeded, as we can now name, but hundreds of companies failed to scale and fight the big players and their economies of scale. So that was the old wave of fintech. And I think what's starting now, what gives rise to what we call banking as a service, is the idea of fintech 2.0. The idea that fintech is now becoming a feature in thousands of products, as opposed to a standalone group of companies. So if you look at the high end of fintech 2.0, you see companies like Uber and Shopify and Toast and Lyft launching financial services to monetize better, give more value, and just expand their reach as far as customer relationships. If you look at the low end or the upstart generation of, of embedded fintech, you see companies that serve freelancers or schools or construction companies or online creators. You see all these audiences and all of the products that get built for them these days, they all combine software and financial services from day one, and they typically go after a pretty narrow audience, right? So this is how we think about financial services innovation. I think the first wave has come to an end. No one is building the next time. No one is funding the next time, as you know, as an investor. And now it's all about who is building the next 10,000 companies that go after 0.1, 0.2% of the economy, but do it really well with a combination of financial services and software. So that's the demand side. That's what we see as kind of the evolution of the financial services market. Now, why banking as a service? If you look at how all these companies were built in the first generation of fintech, Lending Club and Venmo and Robinhood, you always see that it took them a long time to get to market and they invested heavily in three areas, bank relationships, compliance, and tech. In the US, the legal framework for doing business in finance is that you have to find a sponsor bank. You have to find a bank partner, regardless of what product you offer. It could be accounts, it could be cards, payments or lending. You will have to find this bank. The second thing you have to do is you have to stand up a compliance team and typically 15 to 20 compliance policies that give you permission to distribute financial products on behalf of the bank, right? So Shopify had to do it, Toast had to do it, etc. And the third thing you have to do is to build a lot of tech to get to a, an interesting and cutting edge experience that took Venmo and, and Mercury a long time to build, right? So if you look at these three areas, we thought, and you know, many people in banking as a service think that they're both hard and undifferentiated. For the next 5,000 companies to stand up financial products, it's unfeasible to take to incur the investment that those early players incurred, and it's not necessary anymore. So what banking as a service is all about, there are many flavors for how to do it, but it's really how can you streamline the connection between the banks that provide the underlying product and the tech companies that want to build these products, and how can you make it easier for them to connect with each other? We have chosen a specific flavor, but there are other types of flavors that companies practice, and there are you know, direct bank to tech relationships. There are some bank to platform like unit to tech relationships. You can see many types of, of solutions in the ecosystem. So I want to talk a little bit about your customers, but before we go there, let's talk specifically about unit. 
out of all the problems that you could solve, especially as a former entrepreneur, why decide to focus specifically on, on this and maybe guide us through the initial days of unit where you are now? So one is we have passion. We have a passion for both financial services and infrastructure. So I've been super passionate about infrastructure since I was a kid. I like the ideas of shared utilities that people can use and it, it provides, you know, social benefits, but it also provides this idea that, that the world gets more efficient and the world is, is elevated through infrastructure. So anything from the computers we use and the operating systems we use to the phones we have, the electricity and tap water that we, we tap into, these are all really important pieces of infrastructure. And I, I just love these problems and I love thinking about these problems since I was a kid. So for me, I think the idea of packaging something that's extremely difficult to build into a, an intuitive set of building blocks is, is our passion. And so we deliver one dashboard, one API, and a set of white-labeled UIs that people can build those financial services with. But behind the scenes, there's very much an iceberg situation where 90% of the complexity is, is basically underwater, and Unit handles it with, with partner banks and other entities. And so you can be free to build. So I, I like the idea of empowering. I like it in, in also thinking about it in two ripples. Empowering builders is the first ripple, right? If we inspire 50 or 100 companies to build financial services, we take a set of really capable people and really motivated people and we allow them to achieve something that they're excited about. And we make programming money more intuitive to them. The second ripple is when they launch this product and they get into the hands of 50,000 businesses or 500,000 individuals, the feedback that they get on these products and the adoption really excites us. The enablement just happens in those two ripples. And it's a really interesting way to think about infrastructure. And what's the relationship do you have with your clients as a, specifically as it relates to launching new features and, and new products? Because you started with something very specific, but now you've evolved into a lot more. So... I'll maybe start by speaking to what we had in the beginning, what we have now and where this is all going. And then I can speak to the client's role in shaping this ecosystem. I believe that innovation in finance is finite and innovation in software is infinite, right? So if you look at a company like Stripe, they've done one thing that has been done before them, but they've built generations of IP above that idea of payments acceptance, right? So... They have not created any new way to move money, but they've created experiences and software layers and data layers and fraud prevention that comes on top. And that's how we think about Unit. So V1 of Unit is you have the ability to identify an individual or a business and open a checking account for them, right? We did not support wires. We only supported ACH. We did not support checks. So we had a notable gap in the beginning for some of the most popular ways to move money. Interest payments also were not supported in the beginning, right? So we had a meaningful deficit in V1 that was two years ago, but over time we added all of these things, right? And now I think we're finally at the point where Unit supports all the mainstream ways to move money. Um, there are more gaps and expansion points that we are looking into, but really financial innovation is finite, right? Banks and lenders and every financial entity in the last 100 years has only done accounts, cards, payments, and lending. So we're not going to push the envelope there. Where we can push the envelope is, for example, white-labeled UIs, right? Because it's, it's not a financial problem, it's a software problem. So we think about the next 
appreciate your students as, as an exercise in discovering software problems and acting on these software problems. Another example is we have many customers that have reached scale and they want to take all the data that they generate, card spend, money movements, fees, campaigns, revenues, and they want to start querying this data and they want to make better business decisions. So how can we package the data and allow them to query the data and just see a better business picture is a software problem, right? We have not moved money in that process, but we've created tools that help them get more sophisticated. And clients to us are the only source of viable input on the product. So we shipped a thousand times last year and a thousand, I think 800 times the year before. We believe in continuous delivery of the product, but we will be a non-company once we stop listening to clients and, and start acting on our own whims and thoughts. And so I think the feedback loop is really, really critical to us. And we see them as the, you know, 80% of the features we ship at the unit are a direct response to a client request. And then of course, the question is, how do you prioritize? Because, you know, we're drowning in requests and we need to make sense of, of which ones are most important. So since innovation in financial services is finite, right? Would you say that for our investors, fintech investors like me, for example, there isn't as much of business model risk that you have to consider when you're making an investment. It's other things that you have to focus on. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would say it ties to a point that I actually experienced while fundraising. Some investors that have been celebrated as the best fintech investors in the last 10 years were actually not equipped or passionate about underwriting Unit as an infrastructure company. Right. When, when they evaluated us, they evaluated, oh, Unit can help people move money via ACH. They can help people move money via wires. They can generate interest. They can streamline the bank to client relationships. But I think what they failed to understand is the 50 year roadmap, right? Not the first three years. The first three years are easy. Everyone can build money movements and other kind of basic building blocks. And so I think financial technology investors, they got used to the idea of underwriting business models. But in the case of companies like Unit, they need to underwrite something else, which is our ability to ship software as founders and iterate on it thousands of times. Um, and I think this is true for the next 10 years in fintech companies, right? In the past, you had a Venmo or a Chime or a Lending Club. And if you are a sophisticated investor that came from a banking background, you had the ability to ask yourself, can they do what banks do, but faster, better, cheaper? Now, this is no longer the game. If you, if you have a company like Shopify or Toast or Juice or Moose or Roofstock knocking on your door as an investor. These companies always mix financial services with software and you, you need to underwrite their ability to develop software and have customer empathy for their space as well as operating financial services, right? And this is not such an easy underwriting decision because software and finance are now blending into each other and they're mixed. It's a... What have you learned over the years about managing a team? I suspect that you have very specific lessons and approaches that you have for bringing people on board and then delegating and maybe share a little bit about the, you know, a little bit under the hood of managing a team. Yes, I think size really determines how miserable you're going to feel in the process of scaling a company. I think once you reach a plateau in the size of the company or the complexity of the business, it might get stable. But as for as long as you're growing 
I think growth feels like a constant state of failure. And many things have been written about navigating those phases. I think High Growth Handbook by Ladgiel is a good primer for not failing completely in that phase. There are many kind of timeless management techniques. High Output Management by Andy Grove is obviously one of my favorite books. I recommend that people read it when they think about managing people and output and getting alignment across teams. Um, so I have many thoughts on being an effective manager, an effective CEO. I'm still learning, right? This is, I, I constantly feel like I'm failing at my job. So like I'm trying to fail less. There is one principle that we keep going back to at units that I think most companies fail to internalize and implement, which is the idea of precision. This is one of our five company values. It's probably the word that's being said the most in my conversations with people I'm giving feedback to and in different parts of the organization. The word precision is being said in engineering, in product, in marketing, in sales, in compliance. And to us, precision is the one thing that can potentially set you apart from every growing company and, and set you on a good path. Precision to us is choosing atomic problems and implementing atomic solutions. And I think for anyone who's familiar with agile software development, the idea of like quick iterations and incremental value is very intuitive. But I think many people in software fail to implement it properly. And definitely people in business, people from a sales background or marketing background or compliance or legal, they think about the world and building the company in an old fashioned way. So I think my obsession as a CEO is taking the maniacal incremental improvement, atomic problems, atomic solutions to the business side of the house, because people make hundreds or thousands of decisions in your company every day. And if you don't ask them to choose the most important problems and apply the most atomic and important solutions to these problems, I think you'll get a company that inflates in debt and unshipped products and complexity. And you'll see a lot of big bank projects that never get shipped, right? These like three to six month project that, that always sleep. So I think the idea of precision is something you can always get better at. And it's a moving target for us, but it's so important for scaling and managing a company. It's the first time someone brings up the concept of precision in the show. Let's drill down a little bit, if you don't mind. Can you give us an example of an instance of within unit where you're proud of how precision was used? So I think one example would be when you manage product, right? And you get all these requests. It's tempting to do a lot of things. And it's also tempting sometimes to take things you choose to do and make them big products. I'll maybe refer to one thing that happened outside of product and, and maybe uses this concept. So a month ago, our head of marketing came to me and said, we are doing an SEO project. And part of the SEO scope and you know, is to launch new pages and FAQs on the website. And our head of support said that she would love to make common customer questions part of that FAQ, right? And to me, there was a big red flag there. One, there's a lot of good intention. So I praise the good intention and I praise the willingness to improve. But the red flag for me was that people took two projects. One is a customer support issue and one is an SEO issue and they blended them into one project. And this what I could see in, the, in, in my mind how this project becomes a two-month project or a five-month project in the company. And I keep nudging people towards 
What's the one-week version of what you're working on? What's the one-day version of what you're working on? What's the 10-minute version of what you're working on? Can you ship one FAQ today on the website? Just launch the page, one question, and keep building from there. So two things we've done in the, in the context of this project. One is we decoupled the idea of support FAQ from the idea of an SEO-focused FAQ. Uh, for multiple reasons, but one of them was we don't like a big bank project. We don't like increasing scope. The second thing we did was that, you know, we had 20 or 30 questions as part of the SEO project. And I asked the question, what are the top three? What are, what are the most precise questions from an SEO standpoint that could deliver value? And how can we focus on shipping them first? And how can we make this a three-day project as opposed to a two-month project? I can probably give you 500 other examples. But this is one that comes to mind as a non-taking choice that we made and and how I viewed the transition. So, Ita, you, obviously you're building a very, very modern company, but you also live in a very traditional industry with traditional players, right? And you're working, you're collaborating with them. And the whole ecosystem, a lot of fintech companies are in the business of selling to financial institutions, right? Legacy banks, payments, you you name it. What have you learned about working with the rest of the ecosystem, especially non-fintech companies? So one distinction I'll make is that we don't sell to banks per se. And we work very, very closely with our bank partners. They're the most important partners that we have in the ecosystem. Unit would not exist without them. But we do not sell to them in the sense that we try to find 5,000 of them and make them adopt a new product. We have a small set of bank partners that we keep increasing. We now have five, but the job is not to sell to banks. That's one caveat. The second thing is that it's I'm not selling, I'm not working with big banks. The dynamics in large banks and the dynamics in smaller banks, like the ones we work with, typically less than 250 employees are very, very different for better and worse, right? So this is the caveat. I would say that what I, I learned from our journey so far is that one you need a lot of patience which founders don't have i definitely do not have patience as a founder and you need backups that's the first point right things can change in a bank things changed after the svb event of a couple of months ago things changed in covid banks get distracted people leave their positions you lose the champion in the bank and you might just lose momentum and it's very hard to rely on just one bank or one hope that a bank relationship would materialize, at least from from the unit standpoint. So we've always operated with backups, and we like doubling down on the good relationships, but we don't want to be arrogant and try to predict which relationships are going to be a great success and which relationships are going to be just okay. That's one. Second thing, and that's something that I think founders should really be careful with, is practice empathy and understand the risk asymmetry. In the U.S., the regulatory framework is one that puts all of the risk and all of the accountability on banks. If you're a tech founder dealing with a bank, you might forget sometimes. We, we did not forget because we, we have a developed compliance practice and, and legal practice, but tech founders tend to forget that those banks have a different risk profile than they do. Tech founders want to grow. They want to take risk. They have nothing to lose in many cases. And the banks think about the world in downside terms. They, they think about capped upside and unlimited downside, right? So be empathetic and speak to how banks 
think instead of how you want the world to look, which is very, very important. And one small tip is that I think signaling is actually annoyingly powerful with banks. They have strong impact on how banks perceive you. So Unit was recently listed on the Fed website as a service provider, as a technology provider, and that gave us a lot of credibility with banks. Our chief compliance officer appeared in the FDIC podcast recently. We made hires that are of high signal value to our partner banks that we are committed and, and invested in compliance. But I think we as founders don't think about signaling as much. We think about the day-to-day and what we're actually doing. Optics, unfortunately, or fortunately, have meaning in that space. It reminds me of a couple of past interviews that I've had, one with the founder of Symphony and another one with the founder of a company now called Contigo. And they started by selling to Goldman. And then Goldman also invested. And after that, they were able to go to City, JP Morgan, say, hey, Goldman's a client. And they've also invested. And that opened the door. The signaling was extremely, extremely important. It's very powerful. Yes. I would say peers are strong, have strong signaling value. And how you build your company is also meaningful in terms of signaling. I think having money is definitely important as you're building companies and you want these, the signaling power. You need more runway to close the Goldman's of the world. You need more money to hire really senior people in your team. And I think we're trying to save people some of the hassle and investment because we can simplify things. But if you're building an infrastructure company or if you're doing business directly with a bank, you will need to invest in the Goldman's as clients and in the hires that would make you. Speaking of working with external parties, let's talk about working with venture capital investors. You you mentioned that some of the fintech investors were not a right fit for unit. We got rejected. I, I just want to make it clear. We were rejected by notable fintech investors, not because we chose not to, but because they did not see unit for, for the software company that it, it wants to be. And for those that, and you, you don't have to name names, but those that did back you and, and versus those that did it, what do you think also... Sounds like a lot of it was on their side, them getting, but also on your end, did you learn something along the way, you know, throughout the raising process? The reason I ask is we have founders listening or aspiring founders who will go through that process in the future. So I'm sure they can learn from you. Yeah. So first I will really respect investors and say that they are great. Many of them are great at what they're doing. And what I've learned is that The reason you get rejected by VCs are typically the reasons that your company might fail. It's an obvious statement, but there's signal in every VC conversations. Of course, we want to hope that we understand something about the world that they don't. And you need to be a bit arrogant and be able to take a punch sometimes to be a founder, an effective founder. But I think people should listen to the feedback and people should, instead of ignoring the feedback or dismissing it, people should act and learn how to answer and really take into account the risks that VCs are flagging because they typically tend to be the risks that you fail eventually as a founder. So that's one thing I learned. We have an incredible set of investors today. We raised 170 million to date from Insight, Excel, Better Tomorrow Ventures, and many other funds and, and long tail of angel investors, more than 60 right now. And I would say that despite my love and appreciation for our investors and their support to date, 
I actually don't think that investors make or break companies. I don't think that prospective investors make or break companies. I don't think that existing investors make or break. They're helpful. But eventually what makes or breaks companies is execution and de-risking. And when you enter execution mode, remember what your VCs that passed on you told you when they passed, because this is going to be the set of things that you'll need to de-risk as you put your head down and execute. And so we switched very quickly from fundraising mode to execution mode every time we raise money. And we typically don't speak to investors between the rounds because we have a company to build. It's a very, very difficult type of business to build. If you don't put your head down and just focus on it, this is a dangerous concept. If you think that there's a investor you should speak to and build a relationship with, sometimes it's an illusion. Sometimes you just need to focus on the risk in the business. Because, you know, Ben Graham, the investor said that in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. Right, So you might get hype, you might get dollars today, but you're building a machine that needs to be weighed against market factors and trends and competition in the long term. And if you don't learn how to do it effectively, regardless of how flattered you feel by investor conversations, regardless of how you feel about progress, you're not going to build the right machine. And I think this is what founders should focus on. Investors are just a friendly and helpful backer and supporter in what is otherwise your lonely journey as a founder. And you need to internalize it and just accept the loneliness and just do it. Could not agree more. So this whole episode is a lesson for aspiring founders. And then you've launched companies in all sorts of environments, bull markets, bear markets, however you want to call them. Obviously, the world is a little bit different than today, but you're still seeing so extremely talented people get started. If we're starting today, would you do anything differently? Yes, definitely. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I had the signs to see or had the potential foresight to use back then. We made a thousand mistakes in our previous company. We made a thousand mistakes at Unit, but we hope we made a different set of mistakes, less costly mistakes. There are many things I would change, obviously. I can get more specific. I think that some of the hiring you're doing along the way needs to be better calibrated. I think that standing up people and talent functions is a necessity. We were too late to do it. I think having an in-office culture is important. And we're just about to get into a new office in New York, but we accepted a hybrid situation that was mixed for a long time. And we, we should have called it quits earlier. And we made a lot of business decisions. I mean, sales processes or, or positioning or product decisions that did not pan out. I think the goal is not to eliminate mistakes in building a company. The goal is to make the mistakes less costly, right? And that's the topic of atomic projects and atomic solutions or problems and solutions. If you make all of your problems atomic, then when you fail, when a solution does not really solve the problem, at least you haven't invested much. So Itai, before I let you go, what has you the most excited for the coming years for Unit and also for the ecosystem? I think there's a good moment in fintech today. I think a lot of people, I think, mourned the demise of fintech or at least celebrated the demise of fintech in the last year. I could not be more excited about the future of financial services. I think the five to 10 year shifts in how people consume financial services, how businesses consume financial services are going to be profound. And I think there's a quieter ecosystem with less hype 
less dollars, but no less innovation that's happening today that I'm really excited to see unfolding in the coming years. So I would like to think that we are a company that can execute in dry environments because we practice precise execution and we think very efficiently about the world. I can't wait to keep executing in a world that requires precision and requires foresight. And I, I could not be more excited about the future. Itai, I could not be more excited as well. And I'm also excited to keep following units journey because it's going to be a good one, I'm sure. Thanks for stopping by. This has been really, really amazing, informative, tons of lessons for people. And it's going to be, I'm sure, extremely well received. Thanks for hosting me, Miguel. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Itai, CEO of UNIT. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off, till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armazo.